0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? Amen. Thank you, Waylon. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? All right. Good. Good. We are in Colossians 1. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Colossians 1. We're going to be in, uh, looking at six verses today, Colossians 1, 3 through 8. So just walking through verse by verse uh, our series right now in uh, Colossians, the preeminence of Christ and Him being our foundation. And so Colossians 1, 3 through 8. And if you, uh, if, if you do look at the liturgy document that we send out in the email every week, uh, apparently on there it only says I get 20 minutes today. And so um, I'm going to have to kind of speed through this one uh, because of that, but... Just kidding, you know I don't look at those things, and, <laughs> nor do I follow them. Um, but anyways, Colossians 1, 3-8. I'm going to read through it, and then um, I'm going to have you look at one verse within these six verses uh, to kind of highlight and underline, and then from there we're going to unpack each of them um, as kind of the foundation. So, starting in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the one verse that I want to kind of look at first and get you to underline or highlight or however it looks for you, um, just remember, is the uh, the beginning of verse 5, which says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That verse specifically in the context of these verses, is really the springboard into understanding these six verses. Because here's something interesting that I've experienced in in my now 20 years as a believer, the last 14 years in full-time ministry. The thing that's interesting to me is God never commands a Christian to rejoice if there's nothing to look forward to. Never commands us to rejoice if there's nothing that we are looking forward to. Because the gospel is the good news that there is always something to look forward to. Something so good that any suffering, any ailment, anything that would hinder us might be required of us will seem light and momentary by comparison. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he says, Because of the future-oriented heaven that I am going to experience, the glory of the Lord... Because of that, anything that I experience now that is suffering or turmoil or affliction, whatever it might be, I find it to actually be light and momentary in comparison to what I'm going to receive. Basically, I can endure anything because of what I'm going to receive and because of the eternity of what I'm going to receive and what I'm ultimately going for. And since there's always this sort of secure and happy future laid up for the Christian... The command remains enforced, rejoice always. Again, I will say, rejoice. I was actually having a conversation with Ezra this week, um, my soon-to-be five-year-old, about heaven and the fact that just a few weeks ago, great-grandpa went on to be in heaven and is no longer crying. And and as we were having this conversation, because Ezra asked, where did great-grandpa go? Um, As we were having this conversation, I, I said, in heaven, there's no crying. He's not crying there anymore. And Ezra kind of responded, um, well, he said, can, can we go there? Like, well, let's go right now if there's no crying. And essentially, I said, well, right now we can't go, but, but maybe one day we'll, we'll go. We'll get to be there. To which then he kind of responded with, well, in that case, let's just go to Golf. Um, Laughter like he just wanted to go somewhere that makes him happy, somewhere that makes him feel good. And that's something that he's looking forward to. Now, he has a really hard time of the patience of, of actually getting there and keeps asking me, where on the calendar is it that we get to go to Top Golf? Um, he keeps wondering about that. But there's this hope that we have as believers of looking forward to something one day that then changes the way in which we actually live now, today. And this is really the foundation for these that allows us to be able to understand them is what's going on in the current situation that they're able to operate in because of this hope laid up for them in heaven. Now, one of the modern objections to looking forward to heaven is this, that that type of theology is so future-oriented and so otherworldly that it takes people's minds off of the pressing needs of the present and turns them in on themselves and their own private spiritual happiness. One of the views that if we only think about heaven, then we're not actually going to look at the current needs around us. We're not going to be present where we are if we're only looking forward. And what they actually think, in other words, is it does not produce love in the present, but it actually produces this sort of escapism. That I can escape the current because I'm just always thinking about the future. And so we must ask, is it true that when Christians set their minds and their hearts earnestly and intensely on the future prospect of sharing the glory of God and seeing the risen Lord and being freed from sin and sickness and living in joy for all eternity, when Christians set their hearts and minds there with deep longing and strong confidence on these things, do they become so heavily minded that they are of no earthly use? Do they become self-centered and fall prey to, as they say, escapism. And today's message is intended to show that the Bible portrays for us a strong confidence in not only the promises of God, a strong confidence there to help us understand that it does not call us to retreat from the world. Because here's the problem, I think. The problem with the church today is not that there are too many people who are passionately in love with heaven. That's not the problem. I mean, name three people that all they do is talk about the future and glory and heaven. You're not going to hear them. The problem is not that professing Christians are escaping or retreating from the world, spending half their days reading scripture or half their days singing songs. Like They're not actually creating some subculture of Christianity where they don't engage the world. They just spend all of their time worshiping Jesus. We don't see that either. And this one hurts a little bit. It hurt when I wrote it. I'm just going to come out and say it, but I believe it's true of our current Christian culture. The problem is that professing Christians are spending 10 minutes reading Scripture and then half their day making money and the other half enjoying and repairing what they spend it on. Like, I actually think that's our problem in our current Christian culture. We don't think about glory enough we don't meditate on it enough. We don't, we're not future-oriented. We don't have a hope that we're focusing on that's laid up for us in heaven that then, in turn, drives and compels us to actually live out our lives on a daily basis. It is not heavenly-mindedness that hinders love. It is worldly-mindedness that hinders love. Even when it is disguised by a religious routine on the weekend... Like, where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven that he feels like an exile and a sojourner on this earth? Like, where's that person that truly understands that their citizenship is in heaven alone and therefore here they're spiritually, technically homeless? But again, it's not about their comfort. It's not about... Their wealth, it's not about their possessions, but rather they're here as sojourners and exiles of heaven in order to interact and impact the world around them so that they're able to provide for those people the same hope that we have laid up for us. Only one thing satisfies the heart whose treasure is in heaven, and that's doing the works of heaven. And heaven is a world of love. It is not heaven that shackles the hands of love. It is the love of money and leisure and comfort and praise. These are the shackles that bind the hands of love. And the power to break these shackles is simply Christian hope. And so I say it again with all conviction that lies within me. is It's not heavenly mindedness that hinders love on this earth. It's worldly mindedness. And therefore, the great fountain of love is the powerful freeing confidence of Christian hope. So let's look at these scriptures and see if these things are so. How does this future-oriented hope in the glory of God, how does that impact our current reality? And as we walk through this, I've got four observations about love that then are going to lead into three practical guides for us on how we are to 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 process that and apply that to our daily lives and then lord willing with time i'll just provide you two quick examples of scripture of characters who are actually living it out and so the first one our text again colossians 1 verses 3 through 8 the first observation is a public fruit about love is that love is a public fruit. It cannot be kept secret. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So the Colossians have a reputation for their faith and their love for one another. So therefore I can conclude that their faith and love have become public. It's something that people are seeing and hearing as they live out their christianity as they live out their faith in christ as they live out their their church culture within the city of Colossae, people have heard of them and are seeing not only their faith but also their love it's become public it's become that they're literally fulfilling what the lord says in matthew 5 16 in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven So love is not merely a private and secret affair. It always involves other people, and so it becomes public. And you've heard me mention that before, that like our relationship with Jesus is not a personal relationship with Jesus. It is a public relationship with Jesus. He designed it to be a public relationship with Jesus. Not only for lost people to come to know Him and to see Him and to treasure Him, but also for the saints for us to be an example for them. I love that Paul talks about that to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. Set an example for the believers in love, in faith, in life. The second observation is that it is a fruit of hope. Love is that it is a fruit of hope. It is the overflow of the fountain of hope. Look at verses 4-5a. through Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the connection between verses 4 and 5 shows that the hope is the actual cause of the love. Their love for one another is there because of their hope that's laid up for them in heaven. The word hope here in verse 5 refers to the content of our hope. The content of our hope. It's the thing hoped for. To the actual joys that are laid up for us in heaven. It, it doesn't refer to the feeling of hope in our hearts. That's not what it's talking about. It's not t- trying to, to get you to have some type of feeling or experience well up within your heart that you then hold on to that for the future. Or you hold on to that in, in, in regards to what's going on in our current circumstances. No, it's it's giving you objective evidence that there is a hope laid up for us in heaven. There, There are promises of God for us in heaven that are real, that are tangible, that exist, that we get to look forward to, and that dictates then the motives and the treasures of our heart. That dictates the affections. That dictates the longings and the desires that well up within us that help provide some fuel for us when it comes to the circumstances that are going on around us. So if you ask, how does a distant future benefit, cause love in the present? The answer is that the hope laid up for us in heaven inspires hope and confidence and freedom in the present. So the link between the objective hope laid up in heaven and the active love for the saints on the earth is the subjective experience of hope welling up in our hearts. The third observation is that love is a fruit of the gospel. Love is a fruit of the gospel. Picking up in the middle of verse 5, it says this, of this, referring to the hope laid up in heaven, of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth so the gospel is bearing fruit and growing wherever it is preached just as also among the Colossians so when Paul hears that there is that, that there is faith and love flourishing among the Colossians He sees it not only as evidence of the power of hope, but also as evidence of the power of the gospel that's being preached among them. Love is a fruit of hope, and love is a fruit of the gospel. And this is simple to understand because verse 6 says that the hope was heard in the word of the truth, that is, the gospel. So we should keep this in mind whenever we share the gospel. When we're sharing the gospel with somebody, We're not trying to get them to understand um, some facts. We're not just trying to get them to understand our worldview. We're not just trying to get them to understand uh, uh, our version of morality when it comes to a standard of living from the Bible. We're not trying to convince them of those things. What we're trying to do is lay before them the objective hope that actually exists in the person and work of Jesus Christ and let that objective hope in Christ be what turns them from placing their hope in worldly things that are fleeting. Like salvation is simply the transition of trusting in worldly things to trusting in Jesus. Because if we trust in worldly things, which is sin, it's ultimately going to lead to our destruction, death, despair, and eternal separation from God. And in that place, that person lives with no hope. No hope. So for us, what we're doing in preaching the gospel is sharing with them there is a better hope. There's something concrete here that we can hold on to, and that's the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, which provides for us a hope that cannot be taken away. So we've seen that love is a public fruit. Love is a fruit of hope. And love is a fruit of the gospel. The fourth observation is that it is a fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 7. It continues on by saying that the Colossians had heard the gospel just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the love that the Colossians have for Paul and for all the saints and for the community around them is not a love that is natural to the human heart. It's not a love that's natural to the human heart. It's not a love that we can manifest. It's not a love that we can create. It's not a love that we can kind of muster up within us. It's not a love that when we see them, we respond by saying, I want to love you. It's not that way. It's a love that is built in the Spirit of God and founded in the Spirit of God and flowing from the Spirit of God comes into us and then we are able to love others as Christ has loved us. That while we were sinners, He laid down His life for us. That while we were enemies of His, He pursued us. And therefore, when we look at the people around us who might disagree, who might uh, hate us, who might have confrontation with us who might be hostile, hostile to us who might just live a lifestyle different than us who we might view in the same way that the bible would review or would view god looking at us as enemies of his we're now able to pursue them because we have the same love of god that pursued us we love as first john says because he first loved us So love is foundational from the Spirit, not from us. Not from us. It only happens in the Spirit. It is as Galatians 5.22 says, a fruit of the Spirit. And this is why Paul specifically thanks God in verse 3 at the beginning. That he's heard of their faith and love. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith and love. If it had had been the invention and product of the Colossians, Paul would have just simply thanked the Colossians for their faith and love. But because it wasn't a product of the Colossians, it wasn't something that they created. It was something that God created within them. So therefore, as Paul is hearing of their faith and love, he's thanking God for it because it's the work of God within their lives. So those are the four observations that leads into the three things to do to bear the fruit of love. The Three practical things that we can live out. The first one is, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. This is for every single one of us. It directs us to give heed to the gospel. Practically, this means to listen to the Word of God. Read the Word of God, especially the promises and warnings. Verse 5 says that we learn about hope in the word of truth, the gospel. How do we know to think about hope and meditate on hope? And and how do we know what the objective truths of the hope is if we are not hearing of of the hope, reading of the hope, learning and studying and meditating on the hope that is found in Scripture? The promises of God that He's giving to us, guaranteeing for us because of the work of Jesus Christ. If we don't know what they are, we don't know what to hope in. And therefore, he's telling us give yourself over to understanding the word of truth, the gospel. Preach it to yourself daily. Day in and day out, we must direct the attention of our minds to the word of truth. If we don't have the word of truth, we don't know anything. We don't know Jesus, we don't know what God is like, we don't know how the Holy Spirit's working. If we don't see how He's worked already and see how He's communicating to us and see how He's describing Himself and see how He's pursuing us and see how He's saving us. He's, he's given us everything we need in His Word of truth that the Gospel brings to life within us as we're able to understand it by the, the way of the Holy Spirit, the Helper coming to guide us in the truth. He's literally providing it for us so that as we go to it, He's illuminating our hearts and our minds to be able to understand who He is. And therefore, that wells up within us the hope that we need to hold on regardless of what we're walking through and going through. Preach the gospel to yourselves daily. Second thing is be in the Spirit. The text directs us to be in the Spirit. Verse 8 Says that the love of the Colossians is the love in the Spirit. It is the Spirit that makes the difference between whether the gospel will create hope in you or whether it leaves you feeling cold. Best way I love to to refer to this, and and this is going kind of way back in in some of the earlier days when we were talking about what does it look like to, to worship, and it's worshiping in spirit and in truth. We cannot worship in truth alone. You cannot have number one without number two. You cannot just focus on truth. What what you become is what we just refer to in kind the theological world as a fundamentalist. I want to know all the facts so that I can win an argument. But if I'm not in the Spirit of God, those facts don't actually transform me into being like Christ. We worship in spirit and in truth. We need both of those. But you also can't be in the Spirit alone without the truth. Because the truth helps us to understand what the Spirit is doing in our lives. How He's leading us, how He's transforming us, how He's causing us to love, and how He's showing us how to worship and how to steward our lives. He's leading us in all of those areas as He's guiding us in understanding the truth. Paul described the way the gospel came to the Thessalonians like this in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. See, that, that's huge. The gospel came to you not only in word, so there was someone there preaching the gospel to them, bringing the truth, like just literally transferal of information. That's what preaching the gospel is. just a transfer of information. We want to give you the truth that's in the Scriptures. We want to provide that to you. But if that's it, then it actually never leads to a full conviction. We have to have the Holy Spirit come in with full power, as it says in Thessalonians, to provide us from the truth and from the Holy Spirit a full conviction of heart and mind That this is where we're placing our hope and therefore going to orient our lives around. That's huge. That's important. It's imperative. So practically, we must endeavor to forsake all self-reliance as we hear the word of God and seek the power of the Holy Spirit. Not to tell us things that aren't in the Scriptures, but to make us feel the wonder of what is in the Scriptures. Our cries must become like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from Your law. We should pray for ourselves the way Paul prayed for the Ephesians in 1.18. That God might have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of which He has called us. What are the riches of His inglorious? inheritance in the saints and we need our hearts enlightened to that to the hope that he's called us the third application is that we are to set our hearts on the hope laid up for us in heaven so we go to the word of truth we're in the spirit and those two things lead to the full conviction where we then set our hearts on the hope laid up for us in heaven Colossians 3, 1-2 through 2 says this, and this is jumping ahead a couple of chapters. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. In other words, as you read or hear the word of God, and as you rely on the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, you should, cons- you should consciously will to transfer your, transfer your affections of the world onto the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's a transfer of, of, of affections towards this thing that I was running after to now I'm running after this. Because I'm now seeing with full conviction by the Holy Spirit and the word of truth that this thing that I've been running after doesn't work out. And this thing that I can run after now, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can see objectively provides me hope and satisfaction and that it wells up within me that in that place I know that I am fully 100% provided for I'm set for my eternity it's kind of like think about it in terms of if you've sat down with a financial advisor and they're like you know you need to set aside this amount in order to retire at this point so that you're 100% covered for some type of retirement this is God looking at us, sitting down as our, as our spiritual advisor and saying, I'm looking ahead and I've actually deposited for your account by the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything you need to be set for life and life eternity. Therefore, you can just sit back and live out the implications of this on your life. You can live out and, and live freely because you don't have to work your way to providing for yourself for eternity. He's already done it for us. He's given us everything we need to be able to hope in that then changes how we live it out. And I believe this is what it means when Philippians two twelve through 13 says, Work out your own salvation, for God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I believe God in working out our salvation right now is working within us to transform our will and our works. Our will leads to how we choose to live our life. Our will is our conviction. And He's working within us to shift that model from let me earn for myself to now let me receive so that I can give and focus on others. And by receiving, I'm just talking about the hope laid up for us in heaven. I've received everything in full, and therefore now I am free to be able to live it out and give it out and and just share it with everyone around me. God's both changing your motives and He's changing your actions for His good pleasure. Closing this out, maybe I will go 20, I don't know. Direct the attention of your mind day and night to the word of God's promises. Seek in all humility the help of the Holy Spirit to see the wonder of what is really there. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. So that by the grace of God the result will be the visible fruit of love. What will it look like? If, If... if hope produces for us love that's rooted in the Spirit of God, then it's going to bear the fruit of that love. And as we see in 1 Corinthians 13, what is love? For us, we will be more patient and more kind. We will be less jealous and boastful and arrogant and rude. We will not just seek our own advancement, but we'll strive to do to others what we would have them do for us we will not be so irritable we won't be so prone to keep an account of wrongs or return evil for evil we will be inclined to bear all things and endure all things for the sake of our neighbor we will not speak about our neighbor's faults without first going to the neighbor ourselves we will return good for evil and use our discretionary time not by maximizing our fleeting comforts, but by devising ways to be a blessing to the lost and suffering around us. More and more, our whole lives will take on an overflowing and other-directed spirit. An overflowing and other-directed spirit. And this love will transform you and your family and the church. And as Jesus says, the world will see your good deeds and they will give glory to your Father in heaven. There's no better evangelism in all the world than a church whose hope in God is so strong that they gladly deny themselves in order to meet the needs of others. They gladly deny themselves in order to meet the needs of others. No better evangelism than that. Now let me show you real quickly the two biblical examples of people who have performed acts of love by the power of hope. And I pray that these examples, these illustrations will stir you to hope and love the way that they did. The first one is Hebrews ten thirty four. The situation around this is that some of the church members had been imprisoned and the rest were faced with the moral dilemma of whether to go around and, and save themselves or whether to, to go visit the prisoners in risk of losing their life and also losing their possessions. And in Hebrews 10 34, it says this For you had compassion. Think about that conviction. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What was the power that drove them in love to the prison doors, knowing that their houses, Would be plundered, seized, robbed, looted, fill in the blank. He says, because you knew, you knew, hope with objective evidence, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. And not only was it just some future oriented better possession in heaven, but it's an abiding one in the present. You have Jesus Christ right now, and because you have Jesus, you have all that you will ever need. Therefore, you're free to be homeless. You're free to be jobless. You're free to lose your family. You're free to experience suffering and trial and all kinds of issues because in Christ you have everything you need. That's how the early Christians were living their lives. You can plunder and take everything from us, but in taking everything from us, you've actually taken nothing from us. To put it another way, it was heavenly mindedness that broke the power of worldly love for furniture and houses and security and it freed the saints to risk their lives in love. The second example is Hebrews 11, 24-26 and this one's going Old Testament. What power moved Moses to leave the comforts of Pharaoh's court and become the leader of a grumbling and stiff-necked people that would then wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Hebrews 11, 24-26 says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Man, this is an illustration of how confident hope for a great reward actually changes our values. Moses actually considered abuse and reproach for the cause of the Messiah to be greater wealth than all of the treasures of Egypt. I mean, he was utterly out of step with the world around him, completely countercultural at this point. He had been transformed by the renewing of his mind. How? It says at the end of verse 26, because he looked to the reward. He had set his mind on the great promises that God had bestowed to him. And so let it be said again, it is not heavenly mindedness that binds the hands of love. On the contrary, it is the worldly desire for Egypt's pleasures and the worldly fear of suffering that actually shackles the hands of love. When you're self-centered, you bind your hands to where you will actually never love. It's only when we see what Christ has done and what He's purchased for us and how He stepped out of His seat at the right hand of God to come down and to die on a cross. I mean, that's laying aside your interest. Even though for him, this was his interest. Was to come and redeem a people by his sacrifice. To love us and consider what we need. Knowing that we could not provide it for ourselves. And he moved. He pursued. Again, I think this comes back to this weird thing that Christianity has has become this mindset that it's, that it's for me. And it's not. It's for the people that God has ransomed and purchased for himself. Christianity is for God, it's not for me. Yes, it is a benefit that I receive by having Christ and also having the purchased hope of glory laid up for me in heaven. That is a benefit for me, but that's not about me. When we make Christianity about us, then everything serves to pursue us, to serve us. It's even hard. I wonder, as we kind of talking about the ministry fairs, we sent that out this week. I wonder for some of us, like as we're looking through that, it's again, how is me signing up for these things in order to serve going to serve me rather than serving the body and serving the community? We've got to have an, or like a reorientation of our minds based on what Christ has done, rooted in the Spirit, grounded in hope, that actually leads to love. And if we don't go and if we don't process it through that lens if we process it through a lens of christianity for you then it'll never work. We will never be a church that truly thrives that's vibrant that's experiencing the spirit of god on a daily basis. Grounded in the Word of Truth. Growing in it and being transformed on a daily basis. Full conviction in Him and Him alone. Not in our convictions that we have been trained in our entire life by the worldviews around us. But having those convictions shifted to Christ's convictions and what He wants for the world around Him. That's what we need. We need the preeminence of Christ at the core. We truly need Him to be the cornerstone In our lives. Flowing out so that. When people look at us. They're seeing us overwhelmed and overjoyed by the hope laid up for us in heaven. That is in the spirit of God according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that in turn they'll come to faith in Jesus. Because they will want to glorify the father who is in heaven. So it's not going to be them coming and saying, man, the district's amazing. This is what they've done for me. No, it's going to be them coming and saying, this is what the Lord has done for us. This is what Jesus has done for us. Even though it might be through the hands and feet of the people within the district, but it's happening and they're thanking God for what he's doing among us and the love that they're seeing and the faith that they're seeing. Because our faith is grounded in the Spirit, not in anything that we can create or anything that we can do. That's the kind of people that I want us to be on a daily basis transformed. And that's why we offer the ministries that we offer so that we're hoping that everything is grounded in the Word of Truth and grounded in the Spirit of God. And at the end of the day, the only two things that really anchor us there is going to be the Bible and prayer. There's the only two things that anchor us to His truth and to the Spirit of God is the Word and prayer. That's why the apostles were devoted in the beginning to the ministry of the Word and prayer because that's what anchored them to God's design for them. The design for the church, the structure of the church, everything. The flow of it, the ministry of it, the service that they did to the community around them, all of it anchored there. Therefore, everything that we offer flows from at least one of those two categories. It drives us. And so my prayers as we are inviting and empowering our people to engage and serve in capacities... That are beginning to see the, the, literally the body of Christ flow and function. It's going to be flowing from a full conviction. Grounded in the Holy Spirit. From a hope that's laid up for you in heaven. And therefore you're just overflowing. And overjoyed. To no longer think of yourselves. But rather to begin thinking of others. That's what I'm excited about. When it comes to the ministries that we're offering. And seeing people... Again, become other-directed. Other-directed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this truth that you have given us in Colossians. We thank you so much, God, that it is you who is the one who is working this within our hearts and within our minds. And that even now, as we're processing this this truth and this message is not anything that we have to go and, and, and work and earn in order to, to make happen within ourselves. But we simply meditate on you. We pray to you. We, we rely on your Holy Spirit to transform us, to give us the full conviction within our hearts and our minds so that with compassion we begin to see others and the needs that they have and we move towards them just as you have moved towards us. We actually begin to love because of the love that we've seen you give us. Father, that is our prayer. That is our desperate cry today. Is that what you've done for the Colossians, you will do for us. And we can have confidence that you will because it is you who are working within us to will and to work. So we thank you, God. And we glorify you and we honor you and we worship you with all of our heart and our mind and our souls. We thank the spirit. For the work that He is doing within us, guiding us, leading us, directing us, rebuking us when we want to step in and provide our own opinions and thoughts on the matter. We thank You, Spirit, for correcting. And we thank Jesus, the Son of God. Thank him for his sacrifice. For it would not be possible for us to even consider salvation, to even consider any type of hope laid up for us in heaven if it weren't for the son seated at the right hand of God. And if it weren't for him dying on the cross, breaking his body and shedding his blood to remove our sins and to remove the hope that we had been Placing our um, satisfaction in that was not working out. We thank Him for giving us a new hope and a satisfaction that truly satisfies, for quenching our thirst. And that thirst is in Him, in Him alone, for we hunger and thirst for His righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at at infothedistrict.church?